from Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jamal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast Friday edition. Hey, Zach, what's up? Oh, just counting the days till our beloved Adam Teeter is back. Yes. Next, on Monday, folks. We, it's been we forever. It has. I feel like we could dedicate one whole podcast to his travels throughout Italy. <laughs> Do you think Adam would have an issue with that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to end up doing that whether we want to or not. Story frankly. time with Adam Teeter. Yeah. Yeah. So we haven't decided on anything we'll talk about ahead of getting into our Friday conversation. We're going to rip the bandaid off. Get we're right just going to jump topic. right in. All right. Go for it, Zach. Sure. Well, I think you and I wanted to talk about this. Uh, we've wanted to talk about this for a while. Not to say that Adam hasn't, but but I think we're both really intrigued by something that we've noticed, which is that if you look at what some of the most popular wines are in America, they are they are red blends. And yet, and yet, both the trade and I think the media as a whole really have a blind spot about this category. Either not talking about it dismissing them or just sort of focusing on varietal wine to the exclusion of blends, even though blends have been a huge seller for decades. They are incredibly popular, both as a whole and individual brands within them. And I just, I don't know, like, like if I, I'll start by asking you this question, Joanna, since you are in some sense newer to this, um, field that I am. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think it is that people kind of throughout just don't talk about this category? I think it's partially because there's a, there are a lot of really bad red blends out there. Hmm. And I think I that can be said for a lot of wines. Yeah. But I think I think people like well, I, I also think you probably don't see them a lot on wine menus. So I think that's part of it as well, because like you said, the industry maybe doesn't respect red blends as a category as much as other wines. So I think that those are two big factors in it, even though, like you said, there are a lot of them out there. And I'm sure if we looked at data from retailers, um, it would tell a different story. I definitely think there's a quality component to this that I agree with, that the category as a whole is viewed with suspicion and and I think not unjustifiably so. I think red blend as a catch-all is very vast and can incorporate yeah. a lot of different things. I think and that's so part of it too. It's kind of confusing. Yeah, to or well, it's as just well. ill-defined. I think yeah. I think like here's my very, very kind of quick and dirty explanation for both I think why the category is so popular and also because why it hasn't captivated uh people in the trade and maybe in the media to some extent. And it's because Red blends taste like red wine. Like yeah. <laughs> generically, they taste, they have, you know, generally ample fruit character. They might have some tannin. They might have some, they're certainly generally on the boozier side. They might have some residual sugar. They might not. They, but they're not, they lack in some sense, because maybe they are blends, they lack a a kind of, e- not easy to describe, but distinctive character that if you are someone who wants to talk about Cabernet Sauvignon, say, or Pinot Noir, or Syrah, or pick another variety. It's easier in some sense to talk about those individual varieties and the wines that they make than to talk about red blends, which, as you mentioned, are both broad and somewhat amorphous, but also tend to, their whole appeal is kind of that they lack those sort of sharp, well-defined borders. Right. But 
and this is where I, I would sort of respond to myself, I guess, just because this category isn't as, you know, kind of easy to define or it lacks some of those clear cut characteristics. We, to some extent, as, as the media and as trade need to pay attention to what people actually want. And mm-hmm. I think this is where I, I get sometimes frustrated on both sides because I think there is this tendency to be like, to take everyone who whose preferred wine is a red blend and sort of dismiss them as a wine drinker. And yeah. that I think is the, the really unfortunate side. Yeah, I, I think that's unfortunate. I think there's another part of this conversation is that there are a few very well-known red blends that I'm guessing would dominate this, this segment. Um, and I think that they've definitely helped to drive the popularity of, or the purchasing of, of red blends. And that's Apothic, I think is one of them. Um, and then another that we'll be trying today. Um, but I think also those are wines that people will be buying from the store and drinking yeah. at home. And those yeah. are wines that you can buy in cases and drink privately. And so I think that's also kind of contributed to this idea that the trade maybe doesn't take the category as seriously because you have like a $9, you know, I don't know, whatever. You have people who love Apothic or something like that. And it just feels, it feels a certain way to like, you know, a psalm at a fine dining restaurant. Yeah, but that, what's funny to me about this is that some of these red blends, yes, maybe Apothic isn't the thing I'm talking about, but some of these red blends, like the thing we're going to drink, is not cheap. It's not no, a cheap no, wine. no, it's not. And yep. and I think that these wines, when they are on lists, I mean, I've heard countless stories, you know, in certain kinds of restaurant settings, even like relatively high end restaurant settings, these wines sell. Like they have a huge built in fan base. They are very easy for people to enjoy and appreciate. And I think there is this part of the the dynamic that I find sort of odious, which is like trying to get people away from what they like into something that the wine director or sommelier or retail proprietor feels is more interesting. And like, okay, some people want that, right? And yeah. if you go into the the certain kind of setting, that might be the thing that you desire from the beverage professional is to say, hey, I'm going to, or I'm going to give you the opportunity to go outside your comfort zone. But I think there is a real kind of... Disservice. Yeah, a disservice and a kind of complete misunderstanding of what the job is about if you approach every table with that mindset. Again, mm-hmm. setting aside maybe some very specific kinds of establishments, I think even if you are a sommelier or a wine director or whatever, you're, I mean, in the end, like... Your job, I think, is to mostly get people what they already like, you know, yeah. in the same way that a bartender should not put their own personal ego or curiosity in front of the preferences of their guests. I mean, imagine I mean, it, I'm sure this happens from time to time, but imagine going in to a bar and ordering a margarita and hearing the bartender be like, oh, pff, really? You don't want a margarita. You actually want this other drink that in, that is, you know, made from ingredients you've never heard of and is like mm-hmm. barely tastes like a margarita. Yeah. Okay. It has lime juice in it. I mean, again, maybe, you know, to, to come back to something that I think we've talked about in the podcast recently, like if you went into a bar and ordered a margarita and the bartender said, actually, what you want is a last word. I think you would be justifiably kind of pissed just because they share an ingredient in common does not mean that like 
that is the same that they're close to one another and and telling someone who who likes red blends that actually what they should prefer is you know varietal cabernet sauvignon which is maybe an approximation since many of these red blends do incorporate cabernet sauvignon or you know any kind of varietal wine to some extent like you are just kind of missing the point of what you do from my perspective at least yeah but i also think that there's a certain like snobbishness in wine that makes that more common <laughs> than maybe a bartender doing it. But oh. but yeah. I mean maybe I not know. that exact maybe, maybe not okay, the exact not example today. I gave, but yes. there's there are plenty of there's plenty of like kind of looking down upon people who order quote unquote basic cocktails and bars sure. too. I can assure you I've seen lots of that. Yeah. I think it's an unfortunate trend in the industry as a whole, sadly. Agree. Agree. I also want to talk about something else with red blends, which is that this is a pet peeve of mine or just a uh, something of mine. And I don't know that it applies exactly to the kinds of wines that we have been discussing in the first part of this episode, or even necessarily what we were going to taste here. Although I think the, this wine is maybe a better example of it than like Apothic, for example. Mm-hmm. But I think that we are also in this unfortunate period in time where for a variety of reasons, the discourse around wine has really kind of shifted away from valorizing the act of actually making wine that the role of the winemaker has been sort of downplayed by a lot of different sources right um winemakers themselves sometimes downplay their own role there's a lot of discussion on both the trade and the press side about oh you know the growing of grapes the the terroir all these things that sort of treat the actual winemaking process as sort of perfunctory or ancillary or whatever And some of it is a response to what, frankly, could be thought of as a pretty heavy-handed winemaking style that was dominant in a lot of places that that really did center the winemaker 20, 30 years ago. Right. But I will say, and again, this is coming from someone who is not a winemaker, has never made wine, so take this for what it's worth. But I think that the act of blending wine, whether you're blending varieties or even individual lots of the same variety – is a far more difficult and complicated process than the average person is aware of. I mean, I have had the opportunity to to do some sort of blending exercises and trials in my career, and it is much more complicated and much it's much easier to fuck up than I mm-hmm. think we t- tend to think. And getting it right at any scale, small, medium, or very large, is harder than I think it is generally discussed. And so I think the other thing that sometimes happens with blends is that they are thought of as like easy wines, not just yeah, easy to sure. drink, but easy to make. And some of sometimes, look, there's undeniably red blends that are on grocery store shelves for $11 that are, you know, adjusted in a variety of ways that, yeah, maybe make the winemaking itself not so challenging, right? You know, there's, it's more lab work than it is what we would think of as winemaking. But a lot of red blends, even relatively inexpensive red blends, are really the product of skilled, experienced blending, which is a real viable, valuable, and I think important skill in winemaking, and one that we should do a better job of talking about and um, valuing. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think there, from the consumer point of view, I think there's just probably more information and education that needs to happen around red blends. And then to your point from like the trade point of view, um, I think there's probably (laughs) a lot of work to be done there to 
better respect the um, the process of making them. Are you drinking yours already? <laughs> no. Sorry. No, I had a <laughs> tickle in my throat. I needed some water. Very exciting over here. But we should probably get to it. So, so what are we drinking, Joanna? The, so I have a bottle of The Prisoner mm-hmm. 2019 California Red Wine. That's Same exact thing on, I have. That's what it says on the bottle. Yep. You know, it it definitely has the smell. It smells like red wine. Yep. <laughs> lots of fruit character, lots of black mm-hmm. fruit, some red fruit. You know, it's very kind of broad fruit profile. Definitely, you know, generous on the palate, but not like, mm-hmm. you know, not quite the like super lush sort of velvety thing I might have expected. I think, you know, I interviewed the winemaker for the Prisoner Wine Company um, for the podcast, uh, gosh, within the last, let's say, year and a half. I don't actually remember how long ago it was. And in talking to her, it was interesting to talk about this winemaking process because the Prisoner has like a really fascinating um, you know, history. It was created by yeah. Dave Finney um, and has this like very defined aesthetic part of, I think, undeniably what made it so popular is that aesthetic. That's and then been- it was sold copied and emulated yes oh yes including, yeah yes by many 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 mm-hmm. um you know i think like you know we did 19 crimes uh on the podcast yes. a while back that's obviously a brand that has taken a huge amount of inspiration <laughs> to put it politely from the prisoner and but i feel like the prisoner has really like defined the category right yes well and, and it's the aspirational body ball yes. within the category that is the thing i was getting at. It's like the prisoner is a high-end bottle of red blend for, for this sort of this specific part of, obviously there are blend, wines that are blends of multiple varieties that command much higher prices. You know, you can, whether they're domestic or, or uh, you know, European or whatever, but, but for this category that we're sort of talking about, you know, mostly California, but to some extent, maybe other States as well, uh, maybe new world, you know, Australian, South African, you know, Argentinian or whatever. Th- the prisoner is the maybe the one of the if not the best known and again definitely commands a higher price point than most of its competitors because of that pedigree frankly um and you know a lot of the fruit comes from napa valley not all of it um obviously it's you know labeled as california for a reason Mm -hmm. but um or no this is labeled as napa valley rather i should say the one i have so maybe oh i don't know maybe we have two different bottles mine says california red wine bottled by the prisoner wine company in oakville Ah. california Okay. Well, then we have perhaps – I didn't even realize they made two different bottlings. I'm very confused. Maybe we can uh, clear clear this up with, uh, you know, after the fact. But, um, yeah, so so I think, you know, there there is that Napa, at least with the bottle I have, you know, that premium appellation attached to it. And, you know, that's that's no joke. That matters to people. And this remains a bottle that, that a, a meaningful segment of the wine public thinks of as, like, their fancy bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's good. I get the cocoa chocolate notes on it. There's big fruit here. Mm-hmm. I get, the, I get, I certainly get the appeal of this yeah, wine. It's definitely, you know, it definitely delivers, you know, the things I think if you're someone who wants this style of wine and it's got a lot of fruit character, yeah, it's got a lot of those kind of chocolatey um, yeah. oak notes, little coffee note. It's definitely, you know, got a fair bit of alcohol, but it's not over the top. The tannins are gentle i mean that's something definitely that we talked about in that episode about the 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 viticulture and the winemaking is really designed around softening the tannins because that's what the drinkers of this wine like but again you know this comes back to something we've touched on a few different times in the podcast like for so many people a prime wine drinking occasion for them is in the evening 
in fr- frankly, like in front of a screen often. Yep. Mm-hmm. And like, this is a perfect wine for that. You don't necessarily need to have food with this wine. You can have things with it, of course. But like, it's a great wine for drinking wine in the way that a lot of people drink wine in America, which is by itself with entertainment or, you know, or chatting with friends or whatever. Like, you know, you're just hanging out around, you know, around the table or on couches or whatever. Like, this is a wine that is enjoyable. It's pleasurable. It isn't going to require that you eat anything to kind of balance it out. And you feel cool having it. I think that's always been the prisoner's appeal. Yeah. All right. So I'm just looking at the label again. It's very compelling to me. Yeah. I want to know if people out there listening have favorite red blends. Yeah. It's okay to – this is a safe space. We, we, if you don't want us to give your name, like you could, we can anonymize it. But if you've got favorite red blends out there, podcast at vinepair.com. Let us know. It's or always tell us really what you think of red blends. Yeah. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Well, Zach, I look forward to chatting with you next week. And, and Adam. And Adam. Have a wonderful weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.